This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The way that tonight is going to go, in a moment, I'll give everyone a quick background on this subject matter of um, definition of adverse childhood experiences and um, some background so we're all on the same page. And then um, I'll ask each presenter to talk about um, a specific programs that UCSF is providing to our community. Um, after me, um, Joyce will talk about UCSF Heart Program, which is about creating safe, supportive, and equitable um, school. And then Will will talk about ACEs in immigrant youth. And finally, uh, Melanie will talk about maternal mental health as a window of opportunity to disrupt intergenerational transmission of health disparity and negative impacts of ACEs. So some overview and definition, just um, to give us a warm-up about this topic. Adverse childhood experiences is potential traumatic events that can have negative, lasting effects on health and well-being. These experiences range from physical, emotional, or sexual abuse to parental divorce or the incarceration of parents or the guardians. They are connected with negative behaviors and health outcomes such as obesity, alcoholism, depression, and many others, as we're going to learn more soon. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and you'll hear from me CDC. That's why I'm saying CDC means Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, along with Kaiser uh, Permanente, back in 1995, conducted one large study, included 17,000 patients. And in that, they investigated the effects of 10 adversities on human health. Those adversities included physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, physical and um, emotional neglect, and also five domains of household dysfunctions, such as when mom has been um, physically abused by, by dad or vice versa, or incarceration of one of the parents, or um, substance abuse in the family. Result of data study, and then subsequent studies that look into this association between um, childhood adversities and um, health outcomes, taught us um, a lot of information about how early on um, life events can put us in a trajectories that, um, that actually results in uh, severe diseases later on. And I will be brief right now that 10 adversities were included in original studies were named ACEs, but we now know that adversities are way beyond that. And next speaker, Joyce, will speak to that more directly. So although the exact way and extent to which that these adversities impact our body is not really fully understood, um, but we know that this type of stressors can cause major disruption and dysregulation in our um, system that they're actually designed to protect us. This, the very uh, system that would help us to, um, when we are confronting a dangerous situation or we feel threatened, be able to escape or get into the fight. 
So disruption in that is as a result of um, this kind of um, stressors. Now, with that, um, does it mean that all these stressors can cause that problem for us? Not necessarily. Um, our body and mind can learn how to cope with um, a little bit of stress if it's not too big, if you know, we can handle that, or we get support. We get support that we can actually recover and cope. But if it becomes um, toxic, uh, when this extreme is extended, is frequent, um, it will um, cause the type of, of changes in, in our neurological and hormonal uh, system that cause permanent long-term um, effect. The other point I want to make is that not all children respond to even toxic stress in the same way. There are some children who are more susceptible, more um, sensitive to stressors because of their, um, their genetic composition. We are about to learn more and more about the interaction of our gene and environment. The combination of the two of them actually determine how much you know, stress is causing uh, more severe damage in our body. So how ACEs influence well-being throughout the lifespan is childhood adversities can cause disrupted uh, neurological and hormonal development, um, social, emotional, cognitive impairment, increased risky behavior, diseases, and even early death. Several studies have shown that the more ACEs we have, the higher risk of certain diseases, such as cardiovascular diseases. So if someone has three or four ACEs, has more risk of developing those heart diseases, and that is called dose-response relationship. And it's not just about heart diseases, but also can be seen in other diseases as well. Recently, Center for Disease Control and Prevention reported that we could, in fact, prevent 20 million cases of depression annually if we can prevent ACEs, as well as 1.9 million cases of heart disease and 2.5 million cases of, of obesity. ACEs are connected with a variety of diseases, cardiovascular disease, cancer, allergies, asthma, you name it. So how common ACEs are? Unfortunately, very common. So one out of four of us in this room have one ACE. And already between four of us, I have one. So I don't know about you guys. Um, and six out of 10 has at least one. So 60% of our population in the US have at least one ACE. So this is a map of California. Uh, the darker the, um, the color, the higher prevalence or percentage of ACEs. So I want to point you to one issue. Even the light color, yellow, is 50%. So we're talking about 50%, 50% and more, and 60 and up to 70%. So it's everywhere, really is everywhere. In our neighborhood, just in our neighboring um, counties. So for example, Alameda County. The blue bar is no ACE, zero ACE. 
the orange is one to two aces, uh, one to three aces, and greenish is uh, four or more aces. So we can see that that number is kind of similar to what we see at the national or, or, or California level, right? We have 44% that have people have one or three aces and 18% that have four or more aces. Now, it's not just diseases, but also societal costs. ACEs cost our society hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, several estimates exist, but even if you look at the kind of lower estimate in North America, we're talking about more than $400 billion per, per year. In the U.S., there are different estimates, but all of them point to the range of $150 billion to, uh, to you know, half a trillion dollar of our societal costs as a result of, of ACEs. Now, there are ways to there are ways and approaches to uh, mitigate the impacts of ACEs. Um, I just listed a few that um, are called evidence-based approaches. These are what Center for Disease Control and Prevention um, recommended, such as strengthening economic supports for families, promote social norms that protect against violence and adversities, um, ensuring strong state for children task um, teaching um, kids with skills such as social-emotional learning and so forth. We're going to hear more about specific programs that uh, my UCSF colleagues actually put in place to address ACEs in our uh, immediate community. More recently, California has um, initiated a movement to address ACEs by uh, implementing um, screening up for ACEs among children and putting into place um, a coordinated and enhanced referral system to help children who uh, need support. And within our UCSF community, there are many, many individuals, groups, centers who are contributing and have been contributing for decades to the science of understanding of how um, childhood adversities impacts our human life by un better understanding biomarkers, by developing tools to screen for ACEs, by developing tools to help children in a school and other settings within the hospital wall, as well as outside of that. And we're going to hear about that a little bit more soon. Globally Reduced Adverse Childhood Experience Grace Initiative came to life uh, most recently, maybe the youngest of many of the centers and groups are working uh, at UCSF, with the mission to advance and translate the science of ACEs to improve the lives of children and families worldwide. And there are two objectives, promote coordinated and evidence-based ACEs, policies and programs in healthcare and other settings and also to develop resilience-enhancing interventions via play to re reduce the burden of ACEs among uh, refugee children. We also have a mission to cultivate, expand network of scientific community that we have within UCSF as well as in the broader uh, Bay Area. I want to acknowledge my team, um, people who have been advising, volunteering for the GRACE initiative, and I would like, with that, um, request that our next speaker come to the podium.
So I'm Joyce Dorado. I'm the director and co-founder of UCSF Hearts. And I run a program that provides some healing and wellness out in the community. What we, our whole mission is to work with schools um, to try to create more safe, supportive, and equitable learning and teaching environments where everybody in the school community can thrive, not just our students, but also um, all the school staff who serve them. Um, and uh, we do this by, um, by providing professional development training to everybody in the school staff, from the teachers to the lunch ladies to the administrators. We provide ongoing consultation on how we um, implement trauma-informed um, practices, which I'm going to define what that means here in a little second. Um, and when we have resources, we also provide on-site um, therapy uh, at schools for trauma-impacted students and their families. So again, um, instead of going with the what some might consider the traditional approach of um, just waiting for students to come to our offices or even going to schools and just providing therapy at schools and then leaving, we're actually trying to help shift whole school environments, whole school cultures to be be more supportive so that everybody in the school community can um, contribute towards healing instead of inadvertently contributing towards harm. And this is the, the roadmap that we use to do this work. Um, what you see before you are our, um, uh, our core guiding principles, um, and I'm going to touch upon each of these tonight. Um, what I want you to notice is that we try to apply these core guiding principles not just to what we do with students and how we interact with students, but um, how we interact with each other as adults in a school community, um, how staff interact with each other, how we look at um, leadership and is leadership being trauma-informed and healing-centered in you know the principles in schools and such, um, how we support leadership to do that, um, and also really looking at policies like discipline discipline policies through um, this, this trauma-informed lens through each of these principles to make sure that, for example, our discipline policies are actually helping children learn skills as opposed to um, being used to simply punish and push kids out of school. So um, I'm just going to start with this uh, first principle. As, as um, Mosin so beautifully uh, let us know, it's about understanding that trauma and stress affect all of us. Um, this is not about those traumatized people over there and then us who are going to help them. We all, each and every one of us, have a stake in trying to mitigate the effects of adversity and trauma um, so, that, so that we can all thrive. Um, so... When we understand brain science, we actually, uh, the brain science behind trauma, we can actually um, start to shift our, our, our own responses. I'll talk about that in a second. So just first I want to just um, define what, what we mean by trauma when we talk about trauma. Trauma is a combination of an event that happens to us, how we experience that event, and the effect it has on us. So the event is a danger or a serious threat of danger, right? And we're actually hardwired when we are under threat to go into fight, flight, or freeze. That's the survival response. And then what makes trauma traumatic is that despite our best efforts, we're helpless to escape this overwhelming stressor, which then overwhelms our brain and our body's ability to cope. 
um, which then uh, leads to a disintegration of the parts of the brain and body that normally work well together. We're going to talk about that in a second, which then leads to this thing called dysregulation. So dysregulation is the loss of capacity to modulate our in, our stress arousal states, our internal states, our emotional states, um, and um, and as a result, a loss of capacity to control our behaviors. This is really important, for example, for teachers to know that when students um, are in fight, flight, or freeze in this survival response because they're feeling threatened, their resulting behavior is not on-purpose behavior. It's actually their survival brain taking over. And then um, if we're not given the opportunity to heal, this can have really lasting adverse effects. Now, a key to this work is that we tell people the bad news of the the adverse effects that trauma can have on us um, and that trauma can affect all of us, but we also want to say the good news, which is that what we know is that it is entirely possible to heal from trauma, to recover from trauma, to overcome the adversities that we're up against. Um, Science tells us that, that we can do this. And in fact, when we're given the opportunity to heal, what we know is that sometimes um, we can come out the other side, maybe even wiser, stronger, more compassionate than we're, what we were before, maybe even uniquely qualified to give back to the world in a certain kind of way. So while trauma may be part of our story, it doesn't have to define us. Yes, and can actually, what, what does not kill us will make us grow stronger. Isn't that Nietzsche? Um, so um, when we understand um, what trauma can do to us, it actually can help us shift our perspective in really important ways. So for example, in a school, sometimes what you see is a student who's really acting you know, off the hook. Um, they're, they're being aggressive, or they're shouting at the teacher, or they're running out of the classroom, um, and... Um, or sometimes you see staff who act uh, in a way that like seems a little bit, mm, I don't know, because they're like having these out-of-proportion reactions to student behavior, or they're treating each other really poorly. And when, um, when we're not in our best, most grounded selves, and we see sort of aggravating or even frightening behavior in front of us, we might be thinking to ourselves, what is wrong with you? you know, what, what is wrong with this person? And when you think that about somebody, what that does is it creates a feeling in you, right? Sort of fear or, or anger or something like that. And that feeling then um, will make you re- react in a certain kind of way, often sort of punitive, um, which then um, will have an effect on the situation that can be really negative. Um, and, but what, our, what we're trying to do when we go into schools, when we take this public health approach to like how do we try to change how we react to behavior, instead of um, with the perspective change that we're looking for is instead of when we see that sort of puzzling behavior, instead of asking, what is wrong with you, can we ask, what has happened to you? What has happened to you? And when we ask what has happened to you, we wonder, is there more to this story than what I'm seeing? This person's up against something, right? It actually can help to provide a context for the behavior, some sort of explanation. Not necessarily an excuse, per se, but at least some sort of explanation of what just happened here, which can then help us um, feel more connected with the person in front of us, feel more compassion for them, which is better for them and better for us, helps um, us to see the strengths that people bear bring to bear despite what they're up against, and all of that can help us have a much more effective response to to behavior as opposed to that sort of punitive negative reaction that can actually really cause problems, because when we have those punitive reactions, that's what leads to pushing students out of school, 
um, and leads to this thing we call the school-to-prison pipeline. It can lead to, when we have that what-is-wrong-with-you attitude towards teachers, it can lead to teacher burnout um, and secondary traumatic stress for teachers. And, um, and we're really trying to shift the picture here. So I want to actually teach you a little something that you can teach to your kids, uh, to your students, to your colleagues, a little bit of something about what happens inside of our brains um, when we experience trauma. So everybody hold up your hand. Everybody has um, a model of the the brain in the palm of their hand, okay? And right down here is the lower parts of our brain, goes right down here, um, and that are involved in, you know, sort of breathing and other sort of systems. Fold your thumb over. This is the midbrain. This is um, the limbic system or the amygdala, the fear response system. And this whole part of our brain is in charge of survival and strong emotions. And then fold your your, um, fingers over the the front here. This is our frontal lobe, our thinking learning brain. It's our rational brain, right, where we can sort of plan and prioritize and um, make, you know, rational decisions, okay? Now, what I want you to do is just will your thumb a little bit here. Will your thumb inside. You feel that? That's you having a feeling. And if your frontal lobe, your thinking brain is well integrated with the rest of your brain. Um, You can actually modulate that feeling. You can express it. You can get what you need, right? But what happens, what we found um, with with brain studies here, is that when um, someone is under threat or when they're triggered by something that reminds them of the threat that they've been under, what happens is the frontal lobe goes offline and go like this, and we flip our lids. This, This part of the brain goes offline, and this part of the brain, the survival brain, takes over, right? So... When you see a kid who's like ah, like this and starting to throw a desk, um, we need to be wondering, has something just happened to trigger them? And they're flipping their lids. And if you've got a student in front of you or a child or a staff member who's in front of you who's flipped their lid, um, then the usual teaching bag of tricks like rewards and consequences and lectures and that kind of thing doesn't actually help the situation and, in fact, can make the situation worse. And what and and what's more is that this doesn't only happen to students and kids; it can happen to us as adults, right? So if I'm a teacher and I'm on my last nerve, um, and something triggers me, and I flip my lid, and then I've got a student who's flipped their lid, you see how like that's a recipe for disaster. Um, and what ends up happening sometimes in schools and super over overstressed, under-resourced schools with folks that are really super stressed out is that. It's the adults and the school itself that is triggering kids into lid flip, and then we're punishing kids for being there. Do you see what I'm saying? So this is the thing we're trying to shift. Um, And then here's the thing, is that this is something that, as you said, is sort of built in for survival. If we actually need to fight or flee or even freeze to survive, then like the survival brain taking over is really good. But if we're under chronic threat, if a person is under chronic threat or has grown up you know, with family violence or community violence, what can happen is I flip my lid, I flip my lid, I flip my lid, and suddenly, because neurons that fire together wire together, it's like suddenly I, my, my lid flips even when there isn't an actual threat. It's a little bit like, it, like it's like it wears a groove in the brain or like a, it's like a rut in the road or a groove like on a, on a record, if you remember playing records back in the day, right? And, um, and I'm much more easily knocked into that fear groove or that fear rut even when there isn't actual threat. Um, and so sometimes the teacher will be like, I didn't do anything. I don't even know why they're doing this. Well, maybe the teacher just inadvertently did something that triggered a kid. And when we can recognize that as fear behavior instead of rude behavior, 
do you see how we can maybe shift what we do to try to help a kid feel safe and supported instead of just pushing them out of school? Um, the other thing to know is that our organizations are full of individual, of living creatures like you and I. And so organizations end up actually acting like living organisms in, in and of themselves. And in an under-resourced um, school um, with that's super stressed out or any sort of under-resourced, over-stressed organization, just like a um, trauma-impacted individual, there's a gravitational pull towards disintegration, towards disorganization. And what you might see is sort of like a really fragmented organization where um, there's a lack of coherence in the school teams working well together and they, 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 they're not working well together. Or there's a lot of finger-pointing and scapegoating and something's going badly so we've got to fire that person or that person or that person. Or people are acting, um, having big, big, big overreactions to small things or shutting down and just becoming really numb just like a trauma-impacted individual might. Or um, there's a lot of fear um, fear-driven fear um, decisions that actually can be really harmful. And so what we know is that organizations like that, so here's the thing, trauma fragments. It can fragment our brains and bodies. It can fragment our relationships. It can fragment our organizations. And organizations that are trauma-impacted are actually harmful. They cause harm. Right? They cause harm not only to the people that we're supposed to be serving, like students, but also to the people who are serving them. Right? So that's why um, organizations like Hearts and other trauma-informed systems organizations, we try to address stress and trauma on an organizational level. So yes, we encourage self-care in the face of stress, but it can't just be about self-care. There actually have to be organizational structures in place that help us take better care of ourselves and each other and that promote wellness for those of us who serve in a system. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, our other uh, foundational principle is cultural hum humility and equity. So there's a lot to this, but let me just try to give you the, the protoplasm of it. Um, back in the day when I learned about trauma, these are the kinds of traumas that I learned about. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Um, and these are all very traumatic, of course. But these traumas happen in a context. And this right here is our societal context, right? These things, unfortunately, are alive and well and living in America right now. Um, and what we know, for example, is that socio, um, sociocultural oppressions like racism, sexism, xenophobia can be trauma-inducing in and of themselves. Okay, so it's the, the looming and sometimes quite in my face right now, here right now threat that my safety isn't quite as important as this other person's safety because of the lottery of birth the color of my skin, or where I was born, or who I love, right? Um, and that can bring up the same trauma reactions and what's happening in the body, the wear and tear on the body, that other sorts of traumas can, can bring up. And um, what we know is that these things are actually part of the history of our country. Our country is built on enslavement of people and genocide and segregation enforced by terror. And because of that, these things are built into our institutions, like institutionalized racism, institutionalized sexism is real and it's what people contend with every day, as well as in our individual interactions with each other. And what we know is that that sort of more bullseye kind of trauma plus this other sort of adversity um, has a synergistic, you know, one plus one equals ten effect. So if we're going to try to address aces and trauma adversity, we cannot simply address this part of the, of the picture. We also have to address the rest of the picture um, or else we're really missing the boat. So for us, 
for example, if a policy, for example, is not racially just, it's not trauma-informed. It's, it's, it's central to the work. Um, just to touch a little bit more on the rest of these principles so you can kind of have a sense of what we do, um, we really emphasize safety and predictability because, as it turns out, nobody can learn or think if they don't feel safe. So we have to establish physical safety, relational or social safety, emotional safety, my ability to manage my emotions and manage my stress, and create as predictable of an environment that is free of unnecessary triggers as possible. Um, the next principle is about relationship. Um, what we know is our worst traumas happen um, in the context of relationship, like where someone's hurt us, someone's betrayed us, someone's abandoned us, right? Um, um, but the good news is that we're actually hardwired to heal within relationships. So when we can provide caring and um, trustworthy relationships, again, not just for students, but with each other and through our leadership and policies. Um, so I just want to like highlight one particularly important component of this that actually might be some, a little strategy you can use when you leave here. Um, so this right here is, is a parent providing co-regulation for their baby. Okay, what's happening right when a baby, like uh, when babies are born, they don't have the ability to regulate their own sort of stress arousal, and they need us to like do this thing. Oh, it's okay, baby. And what's happening when we do that is we're loaning the baby our our calm neurobiology to calm down, um, and then the baby can calm down after distress. And because the way our brains work is neurons that fire together wire together, what happens over and over again as this baby calms down after distress is that they develop their own ability to calm down after distress. Self-regulation skills. So that's co-regulation. And the thing is that we as human beings actually need co-regulation for our whole lives. So what we know is that if somebody is totally in lid flip, co-regulation gets them to calm much faster than self-regulation. That sort of pull-yourself-together thing, right? Um, and so we need co-regulation in our whole lives. Who are your co-regulators, right? And the pitch that we do um, in organizations, schools, public health, um, juvenile justice, is that when you work with people, and I'm going to guess that everybody here in this room does, part of your job is actually co-regulation. Why? Because when I can um, provide an attuned, calm, present, um, caring interaction with somebody who's super stressed out, I'm, I actually can help them get their lid back on and work with me towards learning or towards a mutual goal, right? So co-regulation is actually part of the job of educators. And by the way, if I'm an educator and I'm providing co-regulation to super stressed out people all the time, I need my own co-regulators too. So we try to build communities of co-regulators. All right. Last um, two principles really is about um, empowerment and collaboration because trauma, by definition, makes us feel really helpless. Um, and so when we make other people feel helpless by taking away their voice and their choice, it actually can be re-traumatizing for people. So part of the fix is doing everything we can to try to promote a sense of agency um, for everybody inside um, the organization that there's something they can do to change their plight. Um, and that's part of the healing process for individuals and organizations. And the final one is about resilience and social-emotional healing. It's very easy to get buried under all of the really awful stuff. But as it turns out, we actually have to also pay attention to not just what has happened to you, but what has gotten you through. 
What is the resilience that got, has gotten you through all of this adversity? How do we, we recognize those strengths? How do we build on them um, and lift them up? How do we proactively build real resilience and wellness skills um, for our students, for our staff, for each and every one of us so that we can stay well in the face of adversity? Check out, by the way, the Greater Good Science Center out of UC Berkeley. They have all sorts of really perfect, wonderful um, science-based strategies for being happier and healthier and more joyful. Um, just a tiny bit about um, our uh, outcomes, the work that we've been doing in schools. We actually are seeing some pretty good outcomes when we are able to work with teachers. We see an increase in not only people's knowledge about trauma-informed practices, but their use of them. We um, student uh, Teachers feel that their students have a higher ability to learn and spend more time in class. Um, we see a decrease in disciplinary office referrals, so people are spending more time in class learning, um, a de- decrease in aggression, and and um, even a decrease in suspensions um, when we can come at this from a what has happened to you instead of a what is wrong with you standpoint. Um, we're all over the community. Um, we, we've been able to work with SFUSD, San Francisco, Oakland Unified, um, all the way up near Sacramento and San Mateo. Um, Trauma Transformed is the organization that I was mentioning to you. Check out traumatransformed.org. Um, we're part of a much larger trauma-informed systems initiative. Check it out and become part of the movement. Thank you so much for everything you do to try to make the world a better place and being here tonight. Um, they give a little bit of a, a background on ACEs, so I'm going to specifically focus on a subpopulation that is especially at risk for ACEs, which is immigrant youth. Um, and I really want to just focus on some ACEs that may be particular to this population. So, we, and I'm going to define immigrant youth, particularly newcomer immigrant youth, as youth who have arrived in the United States in the last five years. And I'm going to talk about some programming specific for them that we're working on um, here in San Francisco, Unified and Beyond. Um, so to kind of why, why is this an important population right now? Um, you may have heard on the news a, a lot about the, the large waves of uh, unaccompanied youth coming to and presenting at the border. Um, these, we have large numbers of these youth turning up here in the Bay Area. We're actually um, the second largest receiving um, geographic region in California and in the top 10 in the whole United States for, for youth from this region, particularly unaccompanied youth. And a large part of that is that we have the Ninth Circuit Court, which is located here in San Francisco. And you know, I won't go too much details about that, but there's, there's uh, legal reasons why they're, they're particularly in this area. Um, why is this population one that's specifically at risk? So pre-migration, so for why these kids are leaving their, these countries, particularly the countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, although I'm also going to talk about youth from Yemen and Syria that we're working with here as well, um, and Iraq. Uh, these are youth that are escaping violence, um, whether this is violence related to, to war, um, whether it's related to, to political violence, or whether it's related to, to gang violence. Um, and each of these countries has a, an extensive history, both current and, and past, particularly in the past like 30 to 40 years, of, of, uh, of this type of violence that's also been brought down and, and kind of been more intergenerational. Um, during migration to the United States, you know, a lot of these youth, um, people come to the United States in many different ways. People 
tend to think about these caravans for folks from Central America, the vast majority of immigrant youth are coming, probably presenting at the border on planes or other modes of transportation. That is actually a small number that come in, in caravans or on foot or on trains. The majority of folks presenting in the United States are presenting at the border. You know, they're coming in through a port of entry. Um, and at that port of entry, um, they start to experience a lot of stress, whether it's the wait to go through asylum process, whether it's detention. You know, you've heard about these separations that happen. Um, those separations are still happening. They're happening differently, but they're happening nonetheless. Um, and that's extremely stressful. We, there's a, a, the Physicians for Human Rights just released a report that they're equating the conditions of these detention centers to torture under the, the, you know, the conventions of, of Geneva Conventions for Torture. That report came out. Um, they've had studies where they were able to do that, and that report was just released, I think, on Monday or Tuesday of this week. So that's once they get here to the border, not to mention then the stress associated with, with uh, uh, the asylum process, the wait. Um, for folks who are waiting on the other side of the border, which is happening in, in Mexico um, and in Guatemala now because they're the, the you know third country um, that's accepting folks and that they're being kind of put in Guatemala first, or they have to seek asylum there for coming to the U.S. Um, they are ex- experiencing violence while waiting. You know, they're the same violence they're escaping is happening in these locations. So there's a lot. Then you get to the United States, you're granted asylum, and then you have anti-immigrant policies. Um, you're in communities where violence may be high. There could be poverty. There could be housing crowding. So a lot of things that, that kind of come together. Um, and, and as folks have talked about, these are associated with a number of mental health concerns. The other major issue is that even though this is a high-risk population, they're also a population that's least likely to get services, both medical services as well as mental health. Um, and there's a confluence of reasons for that, whether it's the language barriers and folks aren't being connected to the right services, um, whether it's their documentation status and, and not being able to have health insurance or access to it. Um, in San Francisco County, that's not necessarily an issue since everyone's covered, but in other states in the United States, that's that's a, a major concern. Um, another major issue, which is especially important for the program I'll talk to you about, is that folks have what, low mental health literacy. So this is a term for saying that they really don't understand what mental health is, nor how to access it. Um, particularly folks that are coming from rural areas, um, they may not have had any infrastructure for mental health, um, let alone health. You know, They're traveling three, four hours to go to the nearest hospital to get their medical care. Mental health is not really on folks' radars. Um, they don't know how to identify when they're experiencing mental health concerns, let alone how to access it in, in the United States in the new area. So um, that's a major issue. School-based programs, I'm going to talk to you about one. Um, Joyce talked about interventions in the school. This is kind of like the front line right now for reducing disparities, um, not, not just within immigrant groups, but all ethnic minority or other groups that are experiencing large health disparities. Uh, schools are where kids are at. Um, it's a point of target. Um, and it's a location where you can, can really engage them, and, and it's easier to facilitate linkages through services by going through the schools. Another thing I want to talk about, and I'm, I won't get into too many details about this, but uh, all of the work that we're doing is participatory research. So this is another word for this that people often use, and a mentor of mine called it, is demo- democratized research. 
So essentially, all the f- people that we work with, whether it's you know on the systems level, um, administrators in the county or in San Francisco Unified, all the way down to the youth and families we work with, they've informed us you know each step of the process in our research. Um, our program was developed for by them for them. Um, The program was vetted through folks in the school district, um, in the county, and we kind of have this continuous feedback loop with our partners, um, uh, both the youth families, as I said, as well as all the systems level folks. So um, I wouldn't say we're at the you know, the, there's there's a continuum participatory research that goes from no involvement by the community to full involvement. Um, we're not at the full involvement stage. We'd like to always get there, right? Um, the funding always keeps that. Someone has to get the grants. Our communities don't have the resources to write grants and do that, so someone has to take the lead to do that. Usually it's got to be a you know, university like this, an academic institution. Um, but we really try to lead the way in terms of like what resources we can provide as a research and academic institution, but let them decide, you know, what is actually the content and how do we do this work. So, um, so the fourth group uh, started about in about 2014. This is also when the first large wave of unaccompanied minors came to the border and, and here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And this is a response to these large number of folks coming into the district. Um, I will also say this, which, which has kind of been overshadowed by news, by you know, every new event that comes out every day. Um, Back in 2013, that was the largest number we have seen of, of children, whether unaccompanied or not, ever presenting to the border here in the United States. Um, last year, we eclipsed by that number um, by a lot, by almost 30 percent. So th- this is an issue that is still ongoing, and it's becoming an, an increasing issue. Um, and the inattention being paid to certain Yemen, Syria, and the Middle East, um, in, in Guatemala, Honduras, and, and in uh, uh, El Salvador, um, not paying attention to these conditions, these, these numbers of folks presenting to our borders are going to get much larger. Um, you know, this is our, our, the conditions, and a lot of this isn't just to the violence. A lot of this, I mean, obviously, you know, Yemen and Syria, there's war there, but, but in Central America, climate change is one of the reasons. Crops, you know, people's livelihood in agriculture, um, climate change is changing their ability or impairing their ability to really make money, and they're traveling up here to, you know, get a better life for themselves and their families. Um, this program was developed by pediatricians here at UCSF, um, uh, and it was an adaptation of a program that I and some postdocs put together when we were students in the Child Analysis Services Clinic back in 2013, where we took unaccompanied minors and their caregivers that they were reunifying here and created a group for them. Um, Making a very long story short, because this I could spend two hours telling our story about how we all got together, um, those pediatricians got this program adapted it for the school district by talking to kids, talking to providers um, in the district, in the community, in the county, um, and made it just geared towards the kids rather than having the parent or caregiver component because it was school-based. We could reach, they could reach more kids at the time, um, but lacked with the parental component, which is something we'll, we're going to try to bring back later. Um, I came in in 2017 and was approached because these residents were graduating. They were running this program f- essentially on fumes. They had a couple 
you know, donors that, that gave them some small grants. Um, they volunteered their time. We had in-kind services from folks in the county clinics and in the schools. Um, but they needed really someone to come through and, and help get grants, especially when these pediatricians left because there'd be no more coordinating site. Um, so I came in. They had no idea I had developed the original program. It was just completely serendipitous. Um, and when I was approached, I was like, I, you know, how are, I, I'm not understanding how we're going to find funding for this. <clears throat> I was like, send me your materials. I had no idea what this was. <clears throat> we didn't call it Forte at the time. We just called it the Family Reunification. You know, these groups we just put together one off while we were students. Um, and then they showed me the materials, and I was like, where'd you get this? You know, I was like, these materials look very familiar. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, I got to help and figure this out. And we did. Um, and I was, you know, working on immigrant health projects at the time. So we decided to do this and it took, you know, it's like they say, it takes a village and it really has, you know, we, we went up, I'll talk a little bit about some of the funding we went up, but it involved folks across different universities, uh, county systems, um, that we really kind of put our brains together as well as with these kids and families. The kids have informed all of this. I keep saying our systems, I'm keeping it at a systems level, but really like we spent a lot of time doing focus groups on the ground with these kids and developing. I, I shouldn't even say we, this is before my time even. So by the time I came in, the curriculum was developed for this program for these kids, these newcomer immigrant kids. Um, and I came in and kind of figured out how to put some of these pieces together and submit a grant because it's kind of marvelous that this program that didn't have much evidence, didn't have much money, didn't have much resources with a really high risk population that was hard to target somehow got off the ground and not only got off the ground, but was implemented in 10 to 15 schools over three years and served 150 kids. You have programs that are you know funded that can't have that kind of reach so quickly so how did, why did this work? Um, what, you know, is it working? Um, and really what we started thinking about is you know, the whole purpose of this program is this idea of literacy. Um, these kids are being taught how to identify stress, how to identify their ACEs, how to connect that to stress, and then how to connect to services. It allows us to screen kids in the school so if they're high risk, we can then connect them and link them to services faster. Um, and then especially what we developed as part of the way we're evaluating this program, which this is what the kids told us, the kids' primary reason why they say this program helps them is it develops a sense of community for them. So it connects some other kids who have shared similar experiences. They meet them through these groups. So that's something we're also looking at is how does this increase what we you know, call social connectedness among these kids. And as I mentioned, there was a mechanism so in California, for folks who may not know what the Mental Health Services Act is, so this is a, a tax on folks who make over a million dollars. There's a 1% tax. That tax goes into a fund, which is the MHSA, the Mental Health Services Act fund. And within that fund, there's different mechanisms to, to pay for mental health programming that isn't covered through other sources, primarily through like insurance or, or Medi-Cal, et cetera, right? So a lot of this covers prevention programming, um, which is what Fuerte is. So and the difference between prevention and what you traditionally think about mental health programs that are in a clinic is that 
for, men, for a specialty mental health program for somebody like Medi-Cal to pay for it, you have to have a diagnosis. Um, if you don't have a diagnosis, they won't pay. So if you're trying to help somebody who's at risk but not, isn't fully there because they don't have a diagnosis, but if you do a program, you'll prevent them from potentially getting you know, full-blown diagnosis. Um, you can't pay that through like Medi-Cal or private, well, private insurance. Is, you can finagle it a little bit, but not so much with Medi-Cal. Um, so we got this, we, we were able to go in front of the Mental Health Services Oversight and Accountability uh, Commission, which is in, Sa- in Sacramento, is the commission responsible for this funding. And we w- applied under uh, uh, what's called an innovations fund that allows us to uh, get funding to not only be able to coordinate this program, but also to understand how it works. Um, and we're looking at three ways. So. The first thing is, does this program just work? You know, we're going to look at 400 kids, um, do the, the typical gold standard, which is like a randomized trial. We're going to compare kids who get this program versus the ones that don't um, to see it's helpful and if we can connect them to services faster, as well as are they able to meet more friends and do they under, are they able to understand more about mental health problems um, and, connect and, and learn about how to connect to mental health services um, than kids who don't. The second is um, we have other groups. You know, I mentioned Yemeni and Syrian kids. Um, this program, there's a lot of demand to adapt this to, to that, those populations as well as, as Chinese immigrant youth in, in San Francisco Unified School District. So what do we need to start thinking about when we start taking a program and changing it for other populations? So that's something that we're actually tracking and studying and doing it. And we're starting to do the focus groups with our Yemeni and Iraqi kids in the school district to understand how this program works or doesn't for these groups. And then finally, you know, I mentioned this program kind of ran on fumes for a while, but somehow all these people got together to make this program work and figure out how to get it funded. So what systems need to be in place at the county and district level um, in order for this program to be implemented successfully. So if California is going to implement this now in Alameda or in Marin or, or in L.A. or San Diego, which are the two that, that are knock on the door the hardest because they have the largest you know, two populations in terms of their districts, followed by Alameda and then us, um, uh, how do they do this? Who needs to be there? Why did all these things get facilitated by all these connections, um, et cetera? So I'll leave you with my team. You know, we have our, our uh, research team. Um, we just started the project. We are in 15 schools this year and, and starting and also working on, on the adaptation to uh, uh, Arabic and, and speaking youth. So um, I'm happy to answer any questions after as well. After it. Thank you. So given all the background that you've already received this evening, um, I have the pleasure of talking about another distinct population, the one that I work with, which is um, pregnant people and families with young children at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Um, So I'm going to paint for you a little bit of a picture of what this population looks like, um, why I see it and others see it as an opportunity to interrupt the intergenerational transmission of trauma. Um, and hopefully just give you a sense of um, the excitement that we have behind this work. Um, So you may not be aware that 50% of pregnancies in the United States are covered by Medicaid. 
So when we think about the potential for influencing the intergenerational transmission of trauma, and we think about starting with pregnant women, um, we have an amazing amount of potential impact by starting with families that we know are experiencing poverty. Um, You don't usually choose to be on Medicaid, and so the fact that 50% of pregnancies are covered by that particular insurance mechanism, I think, is, is a statistic worth keeping in your mind. On top of that, one out of eight babies in the United States is born right here in the state of California. Um, so we like to say that if we can figure out how to do things for our Medi-Cal population in a place like San Francisco County, we have the potential to scale something like this across the multiple counties in the state and then create the blue wave that goes east. Um, so in California, and this is a statewide statistic for pregnant women who are living um, in the extreme levels of poverty, so less than 100% of poverty level. I just want to give you a sense of some of the social determinants of health that these women face that underlie sort of the context of their lives. So 24% experience prenatal depressive symptoms, 33% experience food insecurity, 41% missed time or unwanted pregnancy, and 13% experienced physical or psychological interpersonal violence during their pregnancy. Um, This slide is a little bit busy, um, but you have the slides, and so if you're interested in reading further about some of the science behind how um, people think about this intergenerational transmission, more from a physiological standpoint, um, this is a good resource to use. And so basically what it demonstrates here, it's pretty self-explanatory. While it doesn't call out ACEs here on the left side, you can sort of imagine major life events, depressive symptoms. These are the things that ACEs also often turn into um, during pregnancy. These things, these terminologies, I should update this slide, but this basically influences babies being born early and babies being too small, born too small, low birth weight and preterm birth, or those acronyms. And then with, just like ACEs, we know that adverse birth outcomes can have a host of trajectories over the life course that are negative. So you can imagine a a synergistic, not in a good way, interplay of this intergenerational trauma effect. Um, So I'm going to bring it right on home here to Zuckerberg San Francisco General. We did a small pilot study where we interviewed 200 women who were planning to, who were pregnant and planning to give birth at San Francisco General. This was a completely random sample. Um, And you can see the extraordinary percentage of ACEs that these women had experienced. Um, So many of these different 10 ACEs All of them, more than 20% of women had experienced. So I wish I had the slide that shows us the number of how many individual ACEs these women had experienced. But let's just go with many, many of them were four or more, and many of them probably in the category of seven or eight ACEs that they experienced themselves as children. 
Um, this is one of my favorite slides. I can't give a talk without showing this slide because um, I always like to think about um, the hope that that's, we were talking about, like the resilience that can be there. And we talk about pregnancy as a window of opportunity um, because it's a time when people are really motivated for behavior change. Um, they're thinking about their child who is going to be born and how they're going to parent and what they want for their child. So there's this amazing ladder that Nancy Adler at UCSF um, set up, which is basically helps you, asks people to describe where they, how they would self-disclose their own subjective um, socioeconomic status. And it's on a scale of like zero to 10, right? That's what the ladder means. So you ask people, you know, compared to other people in the United States, where would you put yourself on this ladder? So we asked, again, random small sample of women at San Francisco General who were pregnant, where would, or no, these were postpartum women, excuse me, where would you put yourself um, in your SES status in the United States. And you can see that's the average, the star. It's like down around a three or four. And we said, well, where do you imagine your new baby who you just had will be when he or she is your age? And you can see there's this incredible, robust response of hope. Like, I can see that my child will be in a better place than I'm in. So we want to capitalize that on that for these women. So I, I have the great privilege and opportunity and challenge of leading a program at Zuckerberg San Francisco General called the Solid Start Initiative. Um, the mission of Solid Start is really to meet families where they are um, and to do our best to integrate behavioral health and social services with the medical care that we provide there in the safety net setting. Um, we have 1,200 births a year at the hospital, and we serve about 5,000 families with children um, between the ages of zero to three. Um, so these are just some statistics about, you know, we work with numerous clinics and programs, and it's, you know, both an amazing opportunity and a super chaotic place to try to um, pull something like this off. Um, we work with multiple partners. Um, I think it was Will who was talking about it takes a village, um, and that's really true. Like, the context of, of lives that pregnant women and families with young children who end up receiving care in a safety net setting, like uh, San Francisco general, um, they have a lot of profound needs that we are not going to be able to address strictly within our hospital and clinic setting. So um, we work really hard to find those community um, partnerships and partner with DPH um, and also have an academic partner, of course, with UCSF. Um, we use a tiered approach to care. Um, another way of thinking about this is really to try to match the needs that people have with the level of intervention, right? So we believe that, um, I think Joyce was talking about, you know, we all have trauma, we all, we all have needs, we all need supports. So that's sort of what we think of as, you know, everybody should have some access to additional social support during their pregnancy and after they give birth. And then we build up most, more intensive services um, from there, depending on need and preference, of course, for treatment. Um, another thing that I like to talk about, which I think is particularly relevant when we think about ACEs, is that the pregnancy in early childhood um, takes place across a continuum, right? It's a journey. Um, for any of us who have ever been pregnant in the room or been close to someone who was pregnant, um, pregnancy is not an isolated event. It turns out 
usually there is then a baby, um, and then there's a small child, and then we hope that that child gets ready to go to kindergarten. There's a lot of co-regulation, a lot of needs that happen throughout that process. And one of the reasons I like to point this slide out to people is our medical system, as it stands, is actually siloed across some of those most more um, different parts along the journey. So one of our um, the sort of the pillars of our initiative and our work is to do our best to break down those medical silos and really honor the continuum of the journey from the people and the family's perspective, right? So to try to find ways to provide some continuity across the like prenatal, the birth event, the postpartum and pediatric care, which for these families is one continuous event. For our medical system, we see it as separate disciplines, separate departments, separate clinics. It's deeply problematic. Um, so we do that in order to address multifactorial needs. Um, we asked, we partner very closely with the Homeless Prenatal Program, which is a community-based organization down the street from us. And um, we did a needs assessment study where we asked their clients and their providers what contributes to perinatal depression in your population. And not surprisingly, it's it's a host of other factors, right? All of these things are intertwined. Depression in this population is not a standalone occurrence. I happen to be a psychiatrist, so I have to talk a little bit about depression. Um, part of our model is to really engage with community health workers. I think this fits in with um, some of what Will was talking about around this need for, this deep need for community-based participation at all levels. Um, so, you know, I'm a white woman, I'm a psychiatrist, I can sit in my office all day long, and it turns out people don't really want to come see me. And most of the time, they don't necessarily actually need to see me. Um, so what we have found, and what others have found is when you engage with people in the community, like community health workers, um, you actually can engage people in a completely different way and do a much better job of helping them to determine what their own goals are and then support them in meeting those goals. Um, so this is just a little diagram of one of our pilot programs. Um, we have a navigator, a community health worker, who actually is employed by our community-based organization, um, who engages early with the family, and then does bi-directional liaison connection between our services at the hospital and the community-based organization down the street that provides additional social services and social supports. Um, again, trying to address the continuity of care, which is also a trauma-informed tenet that our medical system tends to ignore, right? So it's actually not trauma-informed to have a different medical provider at every visit or to have no um, warm handoffs across these different siloed care. So that's something that we work really hard to try to address. Um, so these are um, some preliminary results from some data um, that we collected in this model of using community health workers. Um, I'll, I'll tell like one story that, that's kind of my favorite one. Um, just briefly, I, one of the community health workers we work with is an African-American woman named Maisha who has become not only my colleague but very good friend. 
Um, and we were going over to see a woman who had recently delivered her infant that the labor and delivery had called and said, you know, we really think she, I get these calls all the time, we really think she needs a psychiatrist. Um, you know, I, I never really know what that means. Um, so we go over and um, we knock on the door and I've never met this woman and um, I say, you know, my name's Melanie, I'm a psychiatrist here to see. She's like, I don't want to see you. Big surprise, right? And uh, but Maisha had actually known this woman um, through her interaction with her as a client, the homeless prenatal program, and she said, "Hey, you know, Maisha, I'm here. I'm here with with Dr. Melanie. It's okay." And the woman was like, "Oh, Maisha, okay, come on in." And it opens up this completely different ability for these women to interact um, with me as a medical provider. So I'm a bit of a salesperson for community engagement, and it's stories like this um, that I think you know are, are the reason why. It's how we make change in our communities, and it's how we inter, uh, interrupt these uh, intergenerational transmission over time. So um, I don't think all these words are going to show up, but the important ones do. Um, some of them are like sort of whited out. I'm not sure what happened there. Um, but this is just a call for us. It's sort of collective closing of this talk, and I feel pretty confident um, that my fellow presenters would agree with this, that the way that we work together um, to really make a difference for the health of our population, especially those that are most vulnerable, is not by sort of our status quo programs and research opportunities Operations, but it's really through radical collaborations that are focused on social justice and equity. Um, and, and we do that by innovative and deeply community-engaged work. Um, so I think I went sort of fast. I don't know. But we want to get to questions and answers. I, of course, have to thank collaborators. And I actually have to thank my children because um, I think being a mom in this work um, helps to bring me to the table um, again and again. So those are my cuties. Um, and the particular partners that I would want to call out are the Homeless Prenatal Program. Go to their website. Look them up. They are amazing. And a lot of this work has been supported by the San Francisco General Hospital Foundation, um, which I'm also deeply grateful for that. So I will close there. So the question was uh, that there was a, a comment about um, that I made the comment during my presentation that family separations were still happening. Um, they are. They, they aren't happening um, in the same ways, um, without spending too much detail into what the policies and how kind of like the system is structured, um, but kids are still being separated from family members. I mean, I can tell you of two specific circumstances recently that father was the father was separated from the children um, at the border uh, for different concerns. It has a lot to do with how things are routed. Um, it's not what's happening before where the kids necessarily are being put in a place alone, but families are being split in half or, or you know, in thirds or whatnot, and women and children are being put one place, men another. Um, it's still – there's no reason for it, um, and it's a lot of just changes that have been made in policy, just to keep it simple. I'll spend a lot of time advocating. Just going to repeat the question. So the question, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, is what would be the takeaway for the audience um, from everything that we spoke about today? What can folks kind of take in, home with them from, from the presentation today? Some nuggets. 
I have some thoughts about that, yeah. Um, so I, I tell my kids, be kind, be kind, be kind. Um, and I, I think that's what we can all do. Um, and I think that, Joy, Joyce, you spoke about the lottery of, of birth, right? And I think this idea that, um, you know, I am a very much of an anti-bootstrap person. Um, I really want to emphasize for folks that, you know, I did not get to choose my parents and the color of my skin um, and all the other privilege that I have. So I think as much as we can recognize that collective privilege and then look for ways um, that we give to others that are less fortunate. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll echo what Melanie just said, but just and just add uh, that I think paying attention to policies is particularly important in the news and, and how you can influence that, whether it's your, your vote, whether it's something at the local level with talking about your board of supervisors and contacting them. Um, it's really just staying informed as much as possible, whether it's at locally and then nationally and globally at this point, right? Um, everything's interconnected, and I think the idea of of collaboration goes even with that you know you need to really be knowledgeable and informed of what's going on and and what other folks are doing um and to really be able to collaborate in in the process of democracy and what that means then for all these programs right so i have a, a slightly different angle on this i mean i would agree with everything that my colleagues have said we got to deal with this on a on a larger systemic level but what what can individuals do um, every day. Um, one of the things that we try to talk about with teachers, with doctors, with police officers, is that, um, it, again, that perspective shift. If somebody is acting in an aggravating way, um, how can I, instead of going with what's wrong with you, um, I want to be thinking what's happening to you. And maybe even more importantly, like if somebody's like kind of escalating and they're starting to go into like, ah, um, what, what's happening here? What we know as mental health professionals and what we try to sort of put out into the world for everybody to know is that if somebody's acting, you know, inappropriately in air quotes, usually what that means is that they're having, like, especially with kids, but certainly with grown-ups too, there's some sort of unmet need that they are expressing with their behavior in a really unskillful way. And if I can sort of try to have a better understanding of, like, what's the unmet need here? What's the what's the actually healthy intention behind this behavior and how can I meet that need in this moment, then I can actually contribute towards healing and helping as opposed to harming. And that sounds really complicated, like you got to have like a psychiatry degree or a psychology degree, but I'm going to say that like there's actually, it's really pretty easy. Um, generally, what's happening if somebody is starting to act in a sort of lid flip sort of way is that they have a need for safety which is a basic human need, and somehow they feel really unsafe. Um, they have a need for connection, which we all, by the way, need connection as much as we need food, um, a basic human need. Or they have a need to have a sense of agency or control over what's happening to them. So if in every interaction that I have with somebody, and especially if they're super stressed out, if I can help provide a sense of safety, like it's okay, I'm not going to hurt you, I'm going to try to help you here. Connection, you know, like act in a of in a caring way and help them sort of 
have feel like they have a little bit more control over the situation, I can actually help just with those interactions um, make things better. And you don't have to be a specialist to do that. You just have to be a caring human being who's paying attention and trying to connect. So that is actually something that I'd love for everybody to walk out of here doing. I have one. <laughs> It's really hard to add anything to uh, what my colleagues already added. I would just say that getting educated and not being stingy, meaning that you know, raising awareness, sharing the education with others, this is not about a uh, problem of others. This is all of us. Um, it only can be done, can be dealt with if all of us are engaged, all of us at all level are working with each other. Um, it's not like a virus someplace isolated in our, our day-to-day life on BART's, on, you know, school. And so that's, that's what I would say. Like, uh, I was doing my own work, scientific work, only not, not really, like, speaking to public. Now I know that this, this type of work is not something I can just write on, the, like, journals and, you know, the scientific journals. It has to be, you know, with community, with, with, with people who are dealing with, uh, with these issues. Summarizing, I think what you're asking is, how can we use this um, trauma-informed lens or this sort of trauma, using this understanding of trauma, um, to to change systems? And how, because you're saying that, like, we probably go ahead. Yeah. So if I could just quickly say something about that. Um, so what's really cool, um, in my view, is that um, for the past six years now, um, the San Francisco, San Francisco Department of Public Health has, um, has been pushing forward this thing we call it, um, trauma-informed systems initiative, um, moving towards more healing organizations. And the kind of training that like I do with teachers, we, we're, we've been doing with all of Department of Public Health um, staff, all 9,000 DPH staff. Um, and then actually not just in San Francisco, but across many, many counties. So, um, you know, more than 10,000, upwards of probably 15,000 people who work in the, in the, um, the field of public health and medicine in, um, and now even across other sectors like child welfare are starting to learn about how chronic stress and trauma affect all of us, not just like patients, but like everybody and, and how that can actually harm, um, the, uh, harm us and make us act in ways that are harmful and then what we can do to change that. So it actually is, it's like, the idea here is that like there's, we have lots of really good medicine to heal people, whether it's like actual medicine or whether it's, um, whether it's, um, you know, uh, mental health. Um, but the delivery system, the systems, um, like the syringe for the medicine is kind of broken. Um, because people are being made to feel like they're widgets in a machine as opposed to healers in a healing organization. So we're trying to sort of change how, the way we do business um, through workforce development and really trying to embed this into our systems. Um, is that answering your question? Yeah. Could I just add a couple of things? I think it's a great question around how some of this could spread into more mainstream medicine. And I think it's very hard um, because medical training um, and the specific departments and specialties in which we are brought up in are not really trauma-informed and are very oriented around a diagnosis and solving a specific problem, which is really different than a broader public health approach. Um, So 
that having been said, I think that's why, you know, we all do the work that we do that is a little bit outside of the box of, of more traditional medicine. And I think that this um, more team-based care, which I do think is getting a foothold in mainstream medicine, is a much more trauma-informed approach. And I think that's ultimately how we will start to shift the way that care is delivered. And working with the communities that we're serving and asking them, what do you need? Right. And how can we do this better? Right. And I would say the person on a team should include a community health worker um, for many of our populations alongside of a physician or nurse practitioner or whomever else. So the question, if I understood correctly, was that as a new health professional coming to the workforce, a second year uh, nursing, you're wondering, uh, first of all, uh, what is available for you? Um, in, in this space, and for someone who also, as a person, might have been dealing with trauma or people around you, how you can support them, how you can support yourself. I would say that as someone that shares the same experience as you, being in this space, just you know, even doing the literature when you are reading, um, it can actually, in, in fact, trigger trauma. So self-care is really important. So the first line of defense should first take care of herself or himself. So that's super important. Um, and the other thing I want to add is that um, there's a lot of work is being developed and done to incorporate, in fact, trauma-informed um, you know, education in medical schools. So UC Davis, for example, has been doing that. In uh, UCSF, uh, I know that some people have started working around that idea. And I want to just add that the leadership should also you know, we, we need a new wave of leaders who are um, educated and also immersed in the trauma-informed um, education. So that's, I can see it's coming. So it's a good timing that you're joining the workforce. It's, it's tough. So I'm, I should also say I'm, I'm an administrator. I'm director of an outpatient clinic. And, and it's something I struggle with with our clinicians sometimes is, and, and I think Joyce called it being widget in a machine. You know, from an administrative standpoint, you know, you often feel as a widget in a machine, which if you feel that way, then your staff definitely do when everything's about numbers and meeting quotas and whatnot. Um, so, but it's something we constantly try in our own meetings to remind ourselves, you know, that we can't, these are real people we're working with. And as difficult as they are, they're, diff they're difficult and have these experiences are not coming or they're hard to deal with or whatever the problem may be that's burning someone out. There's real trauma that's there that that's behind all of this, right? So how do we grow empathy? How do we take a lot of these trauma-informed principles and do that um, and, and stay humble to the whole thing too, right? Whether that's culturally humble, but just humble that um, these are people. Um, they're not just channel, you know, coming in and out um, that really we, we want to make a connection with them and then make connections with referrals, right? Uh, integrated care, I, yeah, I should, I'll spend a lot of time talking about integrated care. We don't have that. That goes back to the collaboration thing and how we need to have that. We're starting to have this and, to having, and having good systems for that, but as a country, we don't really do a good job of getting all the systems to talk to each other. And integrated care, especially in primary care, is of utmost importance. Um, I think that I would just add, find your close friends and colleagues in the work, um, and find the work and the specialty that is your heart work. 
like the heart work, heart. It will all be hard. So find, <laughs> so find the, the part that is that your heart uh, that speaks directly to you and you can bring your authentic self. Um, and that makes it doable. That and your friends and radical self-care. Yes. We, each of us, bring our joys, our, our sorrows, our fears um, to work because we, we're human beings. And um, when, we, when we talk to folks who've been through a whole lot, um, hearing those sorts of stories actually can affect us and bring up stuff for ourselves. Um, and, um, and what I want to say is that I think we all here believe that part of doing this work well, being um, caregivers, being providers, um, involves um, bringing our humanity to work, um, bringing our whole human selves to work, um, and remembering that the people before us are also human beings, and that in order to, um, to, to help people who have been through a lot, we actually have to make space for the energy um, and the, the emotional energy that it takes to stay present with other people's suffering in a way that is compassionate and human. And, um, and that takes time and that takes energy. And a trauma-informed healing-centered system um, actually creates the space and the support for us to stay human um, in this work. And so... I hope that you have folks at your work that, that believe that. I would advocate for that for yourself. We do better work when, um, when we also feel cared for and supported, and that's really part of um, being able to be healers. So, You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.